Welcome to Leadership Dialogues, a podcast for the greater New Orleans region. Leadership Dialogues is produced by the New Orleans Regional Leadership Institute, a nonprofit which provides a variety of nonpartisan platforms to inspire and engage business and community leaders in the greater New Orleans region. Welcome. My name is Stephen Ruther, and I'm the Executive Director of the New Orleans Regional Leadership Institute, or NORLI for short. In this inaugural podcast, we are truly excited to welcome a presenter who has been tapped locally as one of the go-to resources about infectious diseases and more specifically COVID-19. Additionally, he's been highlighted by Time Magazine for his work on HIV and AIDS, and his presentation, which you'll hear, provides fantastic context as to the history and development of viruses and pandemics. And it also provides a startling on-the-ground perspective of our current and upcoming fight against the coronavirus COVID-19. Before we dive into today's presentation, I invite you to follow Norley on social media and to bookmark the website www.norleypodcast.com to listen to all of our podcasts, which we will be producing regularly and which will feature some of the most dynamic and influential leaders and decision makers in the greater New Orleans region. Now, like so many nonprofits and businesses in the greater New Orleans region, we've had to rapidly adapt to an ever-changing landscape as COVID-19 has extensively and perhaps permanently altered our business model. As such, we thought it was appropriate to begin our podcast series with a presentation given to our regional leadership program just this past Monday, March 23rd. The accompanying slides to the presentation can be found at our podcast website, www.norleypodcast.com, and I encourage you to follow along. Our presenter is Dr. Mark Allen Deary, an alumni from the class of 2014 of Norley. Dr. Deary is the Chief Innovation Officer and Infectious Diseases Physician for Access Health Louisiana. Additionally, he serves as the Medical Director for the Southern Center for Health Equities and the AIDS Education Training Center and Ryan White HIV Services. Lastly, he's the founder of 102.3 FM WHIV. Thank you for joining the Leadership Dialogues, and we hope you enjoy the show. Just a real quick basic understanding of coronaviruses. These are viruses that typically um, circulate amongst uh, animals, mammals, particularly camels, cats, and bats. Uh, and they um, rarely ever enter the human uh, uh, or circulate amongst humans. And of course, there's been three very large ones that have pretty recently. And of course, those are at the top of the, of the bar here, SARS-CoV-1. Uh, the MERS virus and then the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus or the COVID-19 virus. We'll talk about that in a quick second. Just wanted to kind of let you guys know that there's actually already um, uh, essentially four other circulating coronaviruses that circulate amongst humans. And in fact, they make up about 10% of common colds. So I'm 51 years old, right? And so if I get a common cold every year, it stands to reason then that I've had uh, over five decades, five different coronaviruses uh, that I have been quote unquote infected with or have have, uh, um, have had a cold uh, by. And those are the four that you can see uh, there. They're the alpha coronaviruses and the beta coronaviruses. So again, just wanna make a very, very uh, clear point because uh, it's going to uh, be relevant in the next slide. Again, 10% of all circulating common cold viruses are the coronavirus. 
And that corona, th those coronaviruses, what's unique about them is that they circulate amongst human beings. Uh, what's, and I just want to point out real quickly the reason why we call it a coronavirus here. Uh, as you can see in the images that the spikes, those spiked proteins uh, make it look like kind of like a crown. And that's essentially uh, where the word corona comes from. But again, 10% of circulating uh, viruses uh, that cause common colds are coronaviruses. Um, what's unique about this virus, uh, as well as the SARS-CoV-1, um, the MERS, uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, and the SARS-CoV-2 virus, is that they essentially went directly from animals to human beings, right? <clears throat> that is the, that's the main takeaway. If there's any takeaway that I would consider here is that the reason why this virus has uh, and it's become this global pandemic is largely because of the fact that we have no immunity for it. When you look at those four other circulating viruses, those have been circulating and all, and those viruses, please recognize they also originated from other mammals as well. But the, um, the circulating virus that we're seeing right now jumped essentially from an animal to a human being without any opportunity for us as humans to develop any sort of immunity to it. And this is what we're seeing. The other circulating viruses, coronaviruses that we see, because they circulate amongst the human population already, the virus is acclimated uh, to uh, our human immune system. And this is why it's just ultimately become a common cold. I wouldn't be surprised if the SARS-CoV-2 virus ultimately becomes a common cold at some point in the future. For example, the H1N1 virus of 1918, that's the big uh, uh, great influenza epidemic that you guys are probably hearing a lot about. That H1N1, which, which killed probably uh, 50 to 100 million people on the globe is now currently just one of the circulating influenza viruses that get passed around pretty readily. Um, and so that is what I expect is likely to happen here. So the SARS-CoV-1 virus is what we refer to as SARS. We saw that happen in 2003, 2004. The intermediate host there was the civet cat. Um, the civet cat is a... Um, is a uh, cat or a, del a delicacy that is, uh, um, it, it, there we go, is a delicacy that's eaten by the Chinese uh, around uh, the, um, the Chinese New Year. And so what happened with this is that it, it wards off respiratory uh, disease. And so I mentioned that it's just, a, it's just ironic that the civet cat was the intermediate host and that uh, for SARS, which ultimately caused uh, a respiratory uh, illness, of course. Um, and then there, there was about a 10% um, uh, uh, mortality rate associated with it. And of course, that kind of petered out pretty quickly, fortunately. The Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome is something that's mostly contained to the Arabian Peninsula. So we see it mostly in Saudi Arabia. I had uh, um, the fortunate uh, opportunity of working uh, side by side with the WHO officer who's in charge of the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome uh, in Saudi Arabia when we were both doing Ebola work together for uh, the WHO. And so it was really interesting to kind of get from him a large part of what was going on with the uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. This has a mortality rate closer to 50% uh, and it's devastating. Its intermediate host is uh, the, the camel. Lastly, here's of course, is what we are talking about, which is the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus or otherwise known as COVID-19. And I just 
I just use the shorthand C19. Uh, so if you hear me refer to as C19, um, that's just because I've been writing it so much. I probably have seen, uh, just this weekend, I, I tested and evaluated 450 patients. Prior to that, probably another 300 patients. So approaching 1,000 people evaluating for uh, C19. Uh, and uh, so it's easy for me to say C19. Anyway, the, this virus, um, uh, we don't know what its intermediate host is. Uh, so we don't know what the actual animal is. But it, it originated in bats and very rapidly jumped into human beings in a process that's called zoonosis. Uh, and as we know, has grown into this uh, this uh, pandemic. Uh, and of course, the origin of the virus uh, is originally in Wuhan, uh, China. This is a, a really nice graph looking at the mortality of the different uh, three coronaviruses, the SARS-CoV-1, which is in purple, the MERS, uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is in the light blue, and then you can see the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, as well. So by comparison, a lot uh, mortality rate is less, but the infectivity is much greater, and this is what is particularly uh, problematic uh, for uh, this virus, and this is what we have, um, this is what we're dealing with on a global uh, pandemic uh, right now. As of this morning, uh, we have almost 300 and uh, we have 335,759 cases with uh, approaching uh, almost 16,000 deaths and fortunately about 100,000 uh, have recovered. Uh, and again, a really great source. People are asking me where my sources come from. I use a source called Worldometer, Worldometer. And as I go through some of my sources, I'll let you guys know. So this way uh, you guys uh, will have an idea of at least what, what I'm using. When you look at the total number of cases starting from January 22nd, um, you can just see this tremendous rise uh, in cases, uh, which has been incredibly uh, impressive. Um, right now, uh, you know, there's been, I think, China is going on five days of no new cases. They have to go through 14 days of no new cases before they're considered to be uh, infection-free. Um, but uh, what we're seeing in Europe and what we're seeing in the U.S. has been incredibly uh, um, impressive in terms of the rise in cases, and I just don't see this stopping uh, at all. Uh, with it, of course, uh, you could see almost a parallel, but fortunately on a completely different scale, uh, a parallel a number of, uh, of deaths as well. Looking at the United States, we have something about 35,000 uh, cases, 459 deaths, and 184 that are recovered. I, I don't want to sound uh, too alarmist, but I do want people to recognize, those numbers are going to be going up very, very rapidly. And every morning you wake up and you're going to check the news or look at your phone or what have you, um, please expect to see more numbers. Don't be surprised by them. Please expect to see higher number of cases. And this is largely because we are testing more. And because we are testing more, we are expecting to see far more cases. Uh, and so I, I just, I, I mentioned this just so that people are, are aware uh, of what's happening uh, and recognize that with the more testing that we are doing, we are going to be seeing more cases. So here you can see in Louisiana, um, uh, you could see that these are, and this is looking at the total number of cases. Uh, right now, um, our total number of cases, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So we're eight. 
Um, the, this is a little at odds with what the governor has been saying, although I'm more likely to, to believe what the governor is saying. Governor is saying we're number three uh, with respect to the total number of cases, and we're number one with the total incidence. So whenever you measure disease, there's two ways of measuring disease. You look at the total number of cases you can count, that you just go out and count the number of cases, right? And then second way that you look at disease is you, you, you measure a rate, right? So you measure how many cases do you have uh, per diagnosis. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's how many new cases do you have? Uh, and so that's a rate. So two different ways of measuring disease. Um, and it's not good when your prevalence rate and your incidence rate are almost equal. So this this doesn't reflect what the governor uh, has been saying over the course of the last couple of days. I'm more inclined, again, to believe the governor. And I assume that what they're probably doing is they're modeling numbers. Um, and one of the things that, and I, I tried to find the reference for today's lecture, I just couldn't get to it, um, was uh, I've seen two different studies that have shown that that these numbers are grossly underestimated, and that's why I suspect that the governor is going off of, and that there's a range between five to 10 was the uh, one study that I read. So in other words, if you multiply a number of cases that we're seeing here in the US and multiply by either uh, the range between five, six, seven, eight, nine, or 10, and another study that I read, um, which was that the multiplying factor should be 19. So again, please do not be alarmed as we start seeing more and more cases coming forward. Again, what we're seeing here from the world ormeter, uh, I, 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 it shows that we're, we have the eight number of cases, but again, I, I'm more prone to kind of believe what the governor is saying when he says that we have a number three prevalence. In other words, we have the number three total number of cases as well um, as um, we have uh, the number one incidence, and and I and I would imagine uh, that Miss Sarah Babcock could also probably elucidate a little bit more information uh, on that. These are the number of cases, uh, particularly in Louisiana. We have about 837, um, and we can see at least by state lab, uh, 1,384, 85 uh, total cases, and uh, 2,113 uh, cases by commercial lab. So I imagine that um, as those numbers start uh, rolling in, we're going to start seeing um, more cases. Before I get to this slide, uh, what we're seeing in Louisiana, I just want to show that those people who are at risk um, and you guys have seen that probably, um, are those that are um, on the elderly side. Um, and this is what we've been hearing about, and this certainly has been the experience of, of the Chinese experience uh, as well. But in, in Louisiana, what we're seeing something a little different, which we're seeing that uh, those people who are uh, affected are tending to be younger. Uh, and we're hearing more about this, this idea that, that younger people are probably a little bit more affected uh, than, than this data would, would, uh, would uh, consider. There's uh, the, the coronavirus uh, or this novel coronavirus or C19 um, is, uh, has a predilection for people with weakened immune systems or other comorbidities, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, particularly uh, or because this is a, um, a virus that uh, settles into the lungs and causes a pneumonia. Of course, anybody with chronic respiratory diseases, asthma, COPD, um, high blood pressure, uh, cancer, uh, and I would imagine that other immunosuppressive diseases like with what I manage uh, on a daily basis with people living with HIV uh, as well. Um, these slides that I'm getting here are coming from a place called Information is Beautiful. Uh, 
I, I would definitely uh, look at that website just for other things because they do really have beautiful graphs. But here, uh, particularly what we are looking at is their, their slide package for COVID-19 and they update it regularly. So here, this is a really nice slide saying that um, uh, these are the uh, conditions uh, uh, and people who are most at risk, especially for mortality. So if you have any of those three plus conditions, you have 48%, uh, that accounts for 48% of people who've died have three plus uh, conditions. So those previous conditions uh, that we talked about in here, they've got a list of them uh, as well. Um, here, 26% uh, uh, of deaths account for people who have two conditions and 25% of those account for one, for one condition. So again, this is a virus that is likely to uh, be affecting those that are not only uh, older, but also have multiple health conditions uh, as well. This is a really, really important concept because you guys are going to be hearing about this a lot. And this is this idea of what's called a reproductive number. Unfortunately, the reproductive number has multiple names. You're going to hear people refer to it as the row. And the reason is, is because it's an R with an O above it, like a, a superscript uh, O. That's actually referred to as an R naught. It's referred to row or it's referred to as a reproductive number. And the reproductive number we're still trying to kind of get a sense on. But essentially the way any reproductive number works is if one person has, and this is mostly deals with viral illnesses, not exclusively, but if one person has um, a, uh, a particular viral illness, how many more people will they give it to and how many more people will those people give it to? And so it's very important when we're studying an epidemic that we understand the reproductive number. When I was in Sierra Leone uh, responding to the Ebola epidemic, we were able to drive the reproductive number from something that was like three point something uh, in other words, one person could theoretically give it to three people. We were able to drive it into the point um, two. So Ebola, while we were in Sierra Leone, we were able to drive the reproductive number to point two, which essentially means that people weren't able to transmit the virus. That's what you want. Anything above one, people are going to transmit virus. Anything below one, of course, people are not going to be able to transmit virus. And the virus is unable to sustain itself in a population when a reproductive number is less than one. That's the whole point of vaccinations. The whole point of vaccinations is that we try to drive the reproductive number of a virus, something like measles, which has the highest reproductive number of nine. And I'll show you that in the next slide. Uh, we try to drive it so that it does not sustain itself in a population. So what we're trying to do here is trying to understand um, what the reproductive number is for um, uh, for the COVID-19 or the SARS-CoV-2 virus so that we could have a better understanding of how infective it is. Now, I, it is fairly infective. And here, and again, this is, um, uh, this is from the uh, uh, Information is Beautiful, uh, and this was pulled together by CDCWHO and the New York Times. So this is looking at, on this axis, uh, mortality, and this is looking at your r naught or your reproductive number right here. And so you can see some of the, some of the, uh, um, so if you are here, let's say, you are highly infective and highly uh, um, fatal virus. So this is the worst case scenario. You do not want a virus that lives over here, okay, because this is a virus that can kill a lot of people and is highly infective. Thank goodness, as you can see, this box here is fairly empty, right? You can see this, this quadrant, rather. This quadrant is empty, thankfully, and that's largely due to the fact that it takes a lot of evolutionary energy to not only be a virus that's lethal and infective, 
fortunately for us as human beings and for the rest of the animal kingdom, uh, viruses are either highly lethal but not infective or the other way around. They may be highly infective but not lethal, okay? But what we never want to see is a virus that's highly lethal and infective. But we recognize that it costs a lot of, uh, of energy uh, for a virus to have to produce to, to, um, to do that. So fortunately, we've never seen that, and hopefully moving forward, we don't. But when you look at some of the highly uh, deadly uh, uh, viruses, you can see they've, they've all emerged, you know, Ebola, has you know was first discovered in 1976 and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it's it's you know centuries and centuries old um uh, but you can see the mers uh, bird flu h5n1 and ebola are all very highly uh, lethal but fortunately their r naughts are very low okay so that's a good thing when you look at something like spanish flu which was the last great epidemic that we had in 1918 you could see its infectivity um was was like two point something right and its its uh, mortality rate was you know we don't we don't quite know because we weren't studying there but it was roughly probably around two or so but look how look how low these numbers are right i mean here you can see covid is probably sitting right here right so we don't know its its actual um we don't know what its uh, actual R naught is, but it's being guesstimated to be between 1.5 and 3.5. And, and for virologists that I trust, they're saying something between 2 to 3.5. Um, and we don't know what the fatality rate is or the mortality rate is, but it's been guesstimated between anywhere 0.5 to roughly what the WHO says, the 3.4. So I show this to show you that this is possibly on par with and probably a little bit more serious than what's referred and I don't and I don't endorse at all the concept of referring to this as the Spanish flu uh, so I wish that they didn't say that I wish they called it the flu of 1918 uh, but I just want you to recognize that this is on par with something that looks like the 1918 flu but there's something completely different from the 1918 flu and that is this they didn't know what a virus was at the time Okay, so let's be very clear. So we have a lot better of an understanding. So even if this were on par for something that would be like um, like the uh, 1918 flu, uh, we we just have so much more uh, information about that. And uh, and I often brag that my mentor, uh, his father was uh, uh, who was a great virologist. Um, his father was the one that actually discovered and and discovered. The, the influenza vi discovered viruses and then particularly the influenza virus uh, of, of 1918. Uh, this is uh, the epi curve uh, and I just want to show you some really, really important trends here. So what we're seeing is that the US here is completely on track with where Italy is. And we definitely, definitely, definitely need to continue our social distancing uh, and isolation. And we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, so that we don't end up being where Italy uh, and where Iran is. And I want to show you what Singapore story and the South Korea story. We did, I think last I heard, something like 60,000 tests total in the U.S. We'll get to tests in a moment. Um, probably, um, uh, again, we probably in total over the course of this outbreak did 60,000 tests. South Korea has done well over 200,000 tests. They, in fact, they test 20,000 people a day. Uh, and you can see once they started to see their 
curve going up, they instituted testing aggressively with social isolation. And you can see they did something that we'll talk about in a moment, referring to they were able to flatten the curve. Singapore did an amazing job. As soon as they started seeing cases, they did an aggressive public health campaign. And at this point, people in Singapore, there is no lockdown, there is no stay at home, kids are going to school. Life is quote unquote normal in Singapore because they aggressively uh, in the beginning of the uh, outbreak were able to identify those people and did excellent social uh, or did contact tracing uh, at the time uh, as well. So the two big uh, heroes of the story here are those in Singapore and those in South Korea, largely because of the amazing testing uh, that they did, testing in, uh, and, and public health measures that they immediately uh, introduced. Um, transmission is, I'm going to kind of start skipping ahead pretty quickly. Transmission is through mostly through what are referred to as respiratory droplets, um, which are these heavier droplets than something, let's say, airborne. There is consideration that airborne is potential uh, because we recognize now um, as a result of an article that came out last week that uh, in the New England Journal that this virus may be aerosolized. Um, and uh, th this may be a little bit more technical, but essentially the droplets are affected by gravity and they fall out of the air within uh, six feet. Um, uh, whereas the, the, the viruses that are aerosolized, like uh, measles, uh, bacteria like TB, uh, these are a little bit more, uh, and I think anthrax is also aerosolized as well, um, that they are able to float longer in the air and have a far less weight so that they are not necessarily affected uh, by gravity as, uh, as you would see with the, with the respiratory droplets. Uh, essentially, the shortness of breath, cough, and fever are the three big things. Fever, 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 fever. Please go and get a thermometer. We define it. Fevers are defined all over the map. Traditionally, technically, anything over 100.4, that's 100.4 Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius uh, is what we consider to be uh, a fever. Looking at public health measures, um, I just want to highlight something that I never thought I would ever uh, hear non-public health people talk about, which is something called flattening the curve. And it warms my heart to see people and hashtag uh, flatten the curve. So let me explain what flatten the curve means. So let's start with this, this line right here, this perforated line. And we're going to call this perforated line the, the, the maximum amount that the healthcare system is capable of managing, okay? Here they have healthcare system capacity right here, okay? And there's one of two ways that this epidemic can happen. One, we need to recognize that this epidemic is here and we're not gonna be able to fight it. So because we don't have a vaccine and because we don't have a cure uh, for this virus, we have to use non-pharmaceutical uh, interventions. And that non-pharmaceutical intervention essentially is this notion of, um, of, uh, of flattening the curve. And so how does that work? One way that could happen is that we can get this, uh, we can continue to do what we're doing, uh, like you were seeing over the weekend. Last weekend, you saw uh, all the, uh, the revelers. I was uh, on a run uh, after working all day in a clinic on last Saturday, and I was running through the Irish Channel, and I was stunned to see the number of people out in front of, uh, of Tracy's. Uh, and of course, that made the national news. And then last weekend, you guys saw that there was a spring, spring break um, partiers that were uh, uh, in Florida 
um, as the uh, Floridian governor, I think his name is DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, is refusing to close the beaches. Well, I just uh, heard this morning, uh, I just read an article that those kids that were on the beach are now starting to turn positive, okay? And what happens when you get a group of people together? What, it, it, as opposed to isolating them, is that you could potentially start to see this epi curve peak, right? And that once that epi curve peaks and once more and more cases start to happen, what could potentially happen is that we could potentially crater the healthcare system because we are, uh, uh, as you are aware, one is that we have a fixed number of beds, a fixed number of ICUs. We have a fixed number of respirators or rather ventilators. Ventilators are different from respirators. Ventilators are um, our ventilation, our machines that are heart lung machines that are meant to keep you alive and these are referred to as respirators. These are N95 masks, right? These are N95 masks and these are the respirators. So I hear a lot of media confuse the terms respirators and ventilators. I just wanted you guys to be aware of that. So what we are doing and what we are encouraging people to do uh, is to please use social isolation and, and distancing because we recognize that X amount of people are gonna get the, the virus. And so they can either get it at once and crush the healthcare system, or we can spread that over time. And so that this way we never exceed the healthcare system capacity uh, uh, with respect to uh, uh, transmission of virus and the number of people getting sick, as well as not risking healthcare workers and their, and their safety as well, because we still need to have healthcare workers on the front line uh, as, we, uh, as we continue here. So social distancing uh, is, is the rule. I, I'm, I'm aware that you guys are all aware of that uh, right now. Um, the, uh, the governor has recently uh, obviously uh, created a stay-at-home order uh, the, yesterday. Of course, the mayor did that on, on Friday. These are, this is directly from the state health department. These are the things that you can do is go to a grocery store or pharmacy, so-called essential services. You can continue with medical appointments. I know that I'm doing everything by a telemedicine or telephonic uh, calls, uh, so please consider not going to your clinic appointments or what have you and see if your primary provider uh, does it via telehealth or via the phone. Uh, restaurants are only for takeout, delivery, and drive-through. Uh, I've been telling everybody to please care for family member or friend, especially those that are elderly that are around you. Uh, and please go outside. We're not saying you can't go outside. Go outside. Just keep six feet between you and others. I go outside um, and, um, uh, and go for a run. Um, uh, you know, or I'm going from clinic to clinic, but, you know, mostly stay indoors. Don't go to work unless you're providing essential services. I am a physician. You guys are seeing me in one of my offices uh, here. Don't visit family and friends. Uh, don't get closer than six feet. Don't gather in large groups of more than 10. And then don't visit loved ones in the hospital, nursing home, or residential facilities. I know that's difficult uh, to say and difficult to do. I'm going to start wrapping up real quickly here. I just wanted to make two more points here. Um, one is this amazing media response that we've seen. Uh, I just show this graph again. I got this from Information is Beautiful. I'm blown away by this graph, right? HIV that's been around since the early 80s. SARS that's been around since 2003. MERS, uh, Ebola, malaria, TB. Look at the 
look at the response of media uh, of 2.1 billion mentions in the media. I am blown away by this uh, just in such little time. Uh, and it, you know, it, it bears to uh, uh, mention, and I understand why that's the case. This is a uh, virus that we can't see, uh, that we have very little uh, to do uh, in terms of being able to fight it, no vaccine, and no cure. Everybody is vulnerable uh, to it. And I, uh, and again, you can see the media response to it. It is appropriate because this is really a uh, an issue. My professional uh, uh, work uh, and that I was going to uh, talk to you guys about last week was uh, social determinants uh, and the history of race, uh, trans, homophobia, and misogyny in medicine. And hopefully I will be able to get to that at some point. So looking at how healthcare uh, engenders racism is something um, that I uh, do a lot of professional research and, and lecture on uh, around the world. And so it's no surprise, no surprise that we are seeing a significant amount of xenophobia surrounding uh, this virus. My wife and I um, had to, were talking about this pretty extensively. And about four weeks ago, we came up with a word that we thought kind of helped us explain the sort of uh, xenophobia that happens as a result of viruses or, or um, uh, epidemics that occur at a different, uh, at a different uh, parts of the world. So we refer to it as pathogeosenophobia. This idea of being able to assign blame, like referring to uh, the novel coronavirus as the Chinese virus is a classic example of what we refer to as pathogeosenophobia, and that is particularly harmful. Uh, uh, not only is it uh, uh, is what we're seeing xenophobic and racist, is that it's also not going to help with respect to the response uh, of this virus. Um, there are a couple things I just want to mention. One is uh, children. Um, we don't understand, uh, and uh, let me just be very upfront and say it is it is uh, wonderful. <laughs> that children do not uh, experience the same symptoms. Uh, they do. Uh, um, they are. They do get infected with the virus, uh, and they do transmit the virus to others. Uh, but we are very fortunate to see that children are not adversely affected uh, by the virus. Um, when, early on, and when the Chinese were looking at children uh, and evaluating them, when they CT scanned them, they scanned them, and they they had evidence of viral pneumonia in their lungs, but the children just did not, they weren't affected by it. They didn't have low uh, uh, oxygenation levels. They didn't have cough or shortness of breath. So fortunately for that, um, I am asking that grandparents do not take care of their grandchildren during this time. Please heed my warning. Uh, uh, children and grandparents should not be together at this time. The incubation period is often, uh, is, is as of yet unsettled. Um, there's, we are using this idea of 14 days. So by 14 days, roughly 99% of people who um, are infected with the COVID-19 or the SARS-CoV-2 virus or the novel coronavirus, 99% uh, are going to be um, uh, uh, have expressed their symptoms. But that's not necessarily the case. 14 days is a little, you know, we may be expanding that, expanding that out a little. What we are seeing is we're seeing further than that, and we're just trying to determine whether these are outliers or not. But right now, 14 days is the bottom, is what we're using as general uh, amount of, of incubation uh, period. Um, testing. The testing was an epic epic failure in the United States. And I, I just don't know how to explain that better. Um, and uh, because of that, we because we did not have adequate testing from the get-go, 
Um, we are on par, right? We are doing this. Now the WHO, um, uh, Germany, a, manu a, a German manufactured um, was able to come up with tests immediately. They were able to get them out uh, immediately out to the, to the world. The WHO endorsed these tests um, and passed them out. And for some reason, and I would love to see uh, uh, an investigative journalist, and I'm starting to see some investigative journalists look into this is to determine why was it that we determined uh, that we were going to use our own tests uh, rather than uh, use the WHO test because it's going to take a couple weeks to make the tests, scale them up, uh, and then of course put them out there. So once we once they were quote unquote scaled up and they went to the CDC and distribution for the CDC, the first batch of tests were an epic failure and that put us back a couple more weeks and we're still having difficult time uh, testing of folks uh, as well. Um, the NSAIDs. NSAIDs stands for non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. Uh, and so what do, uh, so what is that? So there was this letter to, I, it was a letter, it wasn't a journal article. It was just a letter to the editor. And I think it was in Lancet that postulated theoretically um, that anti-inflammatories and that people that were on anti-inflammatories may do poorly in the setting of the COVID-19 virus uh, or C-19. And there's just no evidence for that. There's no randomized control study, whatever. But the WHO put out a, uh, a very strong statement recommending that people not use anti-inflammatories in the setting of C-19. Um, uh, my take on it is this. Um, there is a scientific, there is a hypothesis that makes sense. That's beyond the scope of this lecture. Uh, if you're interested in hearing about it, give me a call. I'm happy to chat with you about it. But essentially, the idea is that inflammation and immunity are the same. We have different words for them, but inflammation and immunity are the same. And if you use an anti-inflammatory, you may be suppressing your immune system. That's the bottom line, and that's the understanding of that. Uh, I just tell people to focus on Tylenol for fever control, and if that's not working yet, go ahead and use the, uh, the NSAIDs. Uh, but I'm not 100% sure that we should be completely dogmatic about the idea of not using uh, anti-inflammatories in the setting of the of C19. And lastly, something I'm very passionate about is the hydroxychloroquine and what we're seeing with that. And to be very clear, I want to be very very clear about this: that um, hydroxychloroquine in the and in the setting uh, of uh, of COVID-19 patients uh, should be exclusively used for people that are in the ICU period and a discussion. There was some work that was done uh, with the Chinese that showed that hydroxychloroquine, otherwise known as Plaquenil. Now chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine are two old, old, old uh, medications that are used for malaria and for the prophylaxis of malaria. And malaria, of course, is a, is a parasite. We're talking about a virus here. But what the Chinese have done is they were able to show that the use of hydroxychloroquine actually worked. Um, and there was then a, uh, and, and again, that's, you know, we should reserve the use of hydroxychloroquine sold in the U.S. as, uh, as a brand Plaquenil, and we should utilize it only in the setting of an ICU uh, patient, and, and that's it. Um, now, what happened was that uh, 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 the, the, uh, some French researchers uh, took hydroxychloroquine and they paired it with an anti-inflammatory or an antibiotic that has anti-inflammatory uh, uh, properties called the zithromycin. You guys probably know it as uh, uh, Zithromax. Uh, and what they found was that the combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, according to their conclusions, um, found that there was a decrease 
in viral load shedding. Not that people actually did better. There was no clinical relevance. The problem is that study is deeply, deeply, deeply flawed. They released the study without going through a, uh, a procured uh, reviewed journal. So no journal is going to touch that study. So let's just, one, make that very clear. Two, there was only 22 patients uh, in the study. Three, it was non-randomized. Four, people who did poor in the hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin arm who got transferred to the ICU, they said were lost to follow up right, rather than accounting for their loss. So now we see this run on Plaquenil and azithromycin, and Plaquenil is a very, 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 very um, uh, needed drug. And if, if there's somebody that's listening right now who's on Plaquenil, they know, and they're probably screaming right now inside, don't mess with my Plaquenil, because people who use Plaquenil are people who have lupus and who have uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And without Plaquenil, their symptoms are significantly worsened. So you're starting to see pharmaceutical boards right now, or pharmacy boards rather, uh, in different states that are not uh, honoring prescriptions of Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine matched uh, with uh, azithromycin. Please leave the hydroxychloroquine alone um, and let, you know, let me use it in the ICU when I see patients with C19 uh, and let people who have lupus uh, and rheumatoid arthritis have access to it because for them, those are incredibly important drugs for them to be able to live uh, uh, their lives uh, as pain-free as possible. So with that, uh, I'm going to kind of step back and just say thank you so much and thank you Stephen and and uh, um, and just like I'm sure everybody else says I was very clear in 2014 we didn't want to be the uh, the, the best class because everybody said that we always saw ourselves as the uh, most the best liked class we were the most popular class of all the classes so there you go class of 2014 most popular class because we were a classy group thank you guys that concludes our presentation from Dr. Mark Allen Deary. We'd like to thank Norley's annual sponsors. Our pinnacle sponsor is Entergy. Our legacy of leadership sponsors are Atmos Energy and Shellmet Refining. Our impact sponsor is Jones Walker. Our support sponsors are Hancock Whitney Bank and Gamble Communications. Our stakeholder sponsors are LCMC Health, Iberia Bank, Metairie Bank, the Miro Foundation, and the Port of New Orleans, and our recognized partners, GNO Inc. Thank you for joining us, and if you'd like more information about Norley sponsorships or our programs, please visit our website at www.norley.org, or please feel free to email me, Stephen Ruther, at Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at Norley, N-O-R-L-I, dot org. Thank you for joining us.